morning, everyone. It's good to see you today on this first Sunday of December. In this uh, season of giving, we are doing a message series talking about forgiving. This is uh, the reason this season exists, is God's offer of forgiveness to us. And so we're going to be talking about what it means to, to really forgive. Two months ago, I was driving down Beach Boulevard, and it was a beautiful sunny day like it often is. My heart was at peace. And then it suddenly happened. Instantly, I was transported back to one of the more painful times uh, in my life. Years had passed, years and years had passed since that moment, but I, I felt much of the same emotions that I had back then. The anger and the betrayal and the fear just all suddenly came rushing back in. And honestly, I, I was pretty surprised. I was, I was shocked. I thought I had dealt with all of that a long time ago. I thought I had forgiven. But all it took was the mention of one name, and the hurt and the anger came flooding back, just like it was happening to me all over again. Jesus said in Luke 6, 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, we tend to hear those words more like a threat. In other words, if you want to be forgiven, then you better forgive. And part of that is true. There is, there is a link. But what Jesus is offering us in this verse, he's really handing us a pair of spiritual bolt cutters that can be used to free us from the prisons constructed by all of the wrong that people have done to us. And what he's saying is if you want to be let go, then you're going to have to let them go. The word forgive means to set free, to release, to let go. And in a broken world full of broken people like all of us, we are going to be wronged. And whenever that happens, the hurt and the anger and the damage that comes with being wronged becomes attached to us. It doesn't just occur and then we move on as if nothing happened. No, it, it affects us and it becomes attached to us and we drag it with us into the future. And there are only two solutions that will allow us to be freed from the wrong that has been done to us. Either we will get total justice or we will give total forgiveness. Those are really the only two ways you can be free of the wrong that's been done to you. Now, total justice sounds like something that's possible. And that's why we work at it so hard, because it just seems like we should be able to get justice in this matter. It turns out it's not possible in this life. It sounds possible, but it isn't. Charles Manson, as you know, died just a couple of weeks ago uh, in prison. If you read or if you have read any of the uh, responses or thoughts of the victims' families, it's pretty clear that Charles Manson spending almost 50 years in prison didn't even come close to repaying them for the loss that they've experienced or did anything really to ease the pain of the death of those that they love. Now, even if Charles Manson had received the death penalty that he was originally sentenced to, my guess is it still wouldn't have made up for what he took from them and his gang took from those victims' families. And really, the, the same thing is true in the smaller wrongs that are more common and we experience more often. I mean, what is the, the just payment uh, that could pay for the damage done by an angry outburst or a lie that's told about us? I mean, is there an amount of money that could be paid us that would make it completely fair? Is, is there a particular apology or an action that would make it all all right? And the answer, if you really think about it, is there isn't a, a way to come up with total justice in this life. 
Now, total forgiveness, on the other hand, at the first sound of that, it sounds impossible, especially if you've been hurt deeply. How, how could I totally forgive? So it sounds impossible, but turns out this one is possible. It isn't impossible. Hard, yes. Very hard, yes. But not impossible. So why is it that we pretty much always opt for option one, total justice, rather than option two? Well, I I think it's because justice seems like a, a more important cause to us than forgiveness. Whenever we're wrong, that All of our emotions and all of our thoughts immediately jump into action and we immediately go into total justice mode. It's the instinct that we feel whenever we're wrong. Now, everyone knows that Jesus was about total forgiveness. And it seems like a nice notion. We we like to hear stories about it and it makes for, for good movies, especially this time of year. But if you really think about it, to us, it, it seems like in this particular case, it's just not practical. I mean, how could a society really run on forgiveness. Imagine if all a business had to do to get out of a contract was say, well, I'm sorry, and we had to forgive them. Or imagine, you know, if traffic laws could be ignored just with a simple whoops or forgive me or as often happens, not nothing. Just imagine a society that ran on forgiveness. I mean, chaos would follow. And so we have this false notion that we have to pick one or the other. It's either total justice or total forgiveness. But with God, it's, it's not either or. It's about the order of both of them. It's primarily about forgiveness now and will be primarily about justice then. First forgiveness, then justice. Now, Jesus was not at all suggesting that we completely throw out all justice and the entire judicial system in favor of forgiveness. What he was teaching and demonstrating was he was pointing to the fact that justice isn't God's biggest goal in this life. And that explains a lot. That's why there's so much injustice. I mean, if justice was God's top goal, there wouldn't be so much injustice. But it's not God's biggest goal. Justice is God's top agenda in the next life. Then, God has said, he will make every wrong right. Justice down to the details will be meted out at that point. And so that's why when Jesus came, when God took on a body and he came to earth in the season that we celebrate now as a baby, he came as a savior. That was his mission, to offer forgiveness. But when Jesus comes the second time to wrap up history, he will not come as a savior. He will come as a judge the judge of all the earth, of all of us throughout all time. So now God's top mission is forgiveness. Then it will be justice, but now it's forgiveness to repair our broken relationship with God. And the only way that can be done is through the work of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can pay the price for our sin that total justice demands. See, in the next life, we will live out whatever we've decided about Jesus in this life. Either we will accept his offer and be forgiven, or we will ignore him and decide to go our own way. And then in the next life, God will honor that decision and make the separation between us caused by our sin a permanent reality. So you can see why justice is not the top goal of this life. There's something far more important 
that's at stake. And so when we don't forgive, when we don't join in with the mission that God's joining in on, what we are really saying is that justice is number one. Justice is the point of this life when it just isn't. It was Jesus who made this very, very clear when he was dying on the cross. I mean, Jesus demonstrated forgiveness. He taught on forgiveness. But I think the largest statement he made about forgiveness was when he was on the cross. I mean, it's one thing to stand up like this and talk about forgiveness. It's another thing to be in the excruciating pain of a crucifixion and moments away from taking your last, last breath and then offer forgiveness there. That, I think, is the biggest demonstration of how important this is. Because his crucifixion, everyone agrees, it was a total and incredible injustice. Those who had been threatened by his rising popularity decided to kill him. Plain and simple. And they used the justice system, ironically, to accuse him falsely and condemn him. Not the first time the justice system has been used to, to bring out retribution that isn't right or fair. And unlike us, who we often can't do anything about the injustice that we encounter, Jesus could have. He had legions of angels at, at his command. But he let the injustice continue. He let it go on. Why? Well, because this wasn't about justice. This was about forgiveness. Something much bigger was at stake. A way to forgive us is what hung on the cross that day. And so justice, whether it was in front of Pilate, who was the one in charge of the legal part of the proceedings, or whether it was in front of the soldiers who brought about the sentence that had been handed down, or whether it was the crowd and the mob who had provided the final push to get this injustice done, Jesus didn't bring justice. Justice was just going to have to wait. And on the cross, Jesus forgave those who had put him there. And his statement of forgiveness, very short sentence, is very powerful. It reveals to us, really, the two reasons why justice now has to wait. Why our justice, human justice, is, is not God's top concern. It's number two. It exists. It is there. But it's not king. Forgiveness is king now. This is what Jesus said in Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, as he's hanging on the cross, to the soldiers who had just hung him there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And in this statement, the first part of the statement reveals one of the problems with our justice, and that is that our justice has a payment problem. We go after total justice in this life, we're going to always come up short because there isn't an appropriate amount of payment that can bring about total justice. Our justice has a payment problem. So Jesus looked down on the soldiers who nailed him there and said, Father, forgive them. Now, they had not nailed the Father, God the Father, to the cross. They had nailed Jesus, God the Son, to the cross. They had pounded the nails into Jesus' wrists and into his feet. So why didn't Jesus say, I forgive you? They clearly had done wrong to him. Well, Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. He said, Father, forgive them, because he knew that this wrong that was done to him was really like every wrong that's ever done to anyone. It's never contained to just that moment or just that person. Every single sin that is done against everyone 
sets in motion a series of impacts that ripples forward in time and ultimately ends up at the feet of God the Father. We think it's just a single incident, and it's much larger than that. Samuel's sec- 2 Samuel 14, verse 14 has a very interesting analogy of what takes place when, whenever we are wronged or when we wrong someone else. It says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. So three items that cannot be recovered are described in this verse. The first, the analogy part, is the description of water being poured out of the ground. You, you, you spill or you intentionally pour water on the ground, and you can't get it back in the bucket. It's now leaked into the soil. You can't recover it. Death is very much like that. Once someone dies, is, no matter how painful it is or no matter how much you wish you could bring them back, it, you can't. It, it's past. And the main point of this verse is this. The separating effects of sin cannot be reversed. And when we sin, we're, we're not just pouring poison into a bucket that we can simply take back. No, we are pouring it out onto the ground. Not just the person, but the ground they stand on. And the impact of that wrong that's done, whether we do it or it's done to us, seeps beyond the moment and beyond the people. The impact never stops. In fact, it is an eternal impact. We, we push over a domino that keeps on going for all of eternity. That's why the only truly just payment for our sin has to be an eternal payment. Either the payment of Jesus, who was the eternal God in flesh, that's why his payment is just, or we have to pay the penalty ourselves. The payment of our own life and separation from God, not just for 10 years or 20 years, but for all of eternity. The punishment must fit the wrong. And this is why, in part, we're never fully satisfied with human justice. Human justice can only address a few dominoes. It can't address the chain that has been set in motion. At, at its best, we can only assign a temporary payment in this life to the one who pushed over that first domino. We can't address the eternal implications of it. I mean, let me make this very practical. Think about, not too longly, but think about one of the deepest wrongs that has been done to you. And let me ask you this. What would make you all better? What would make you whole on this matter? If the person maybe who wronged you crawled to you on broken glass and asked for your forgiveness, would, would that do it? Well, it might feel really good, but having experienced that, having seen that, would, would that make you whole again? Probably not. If you really think about it, the only way to make you whole again would be for it to have never have happened. But that's, like this verse says, that's like wishing water hadn't been spilled on the ground and could be fully recovered and put back in the bucket. That, that can't be done. It's impossible. We, we can't turn back time and, and undo the wrong and all of the implications that have come from it. Whenever sin occurs, it's... It's much bigger than us, and it's much bigger than them. 
Now, we sense that this is true in our own justice system, which is why our trials are never about the victims of whatever the crime is versus the accused. It's never the victims versus, say, Charles Manson. It's, it's who? It's the people versus Charles Manson. The people of the state of California versus Charles Manson. And in doing so, what we're saying is this is much bigger than just the victim. The crime isn't just against the specific victims, but against the society that wrote the laws. When Charles Manson and his gang went on their killing spree, it didn't affect me personally. I wasn't even here. But it affected the society that I'm a part of. That is why the people oppose, not just the victims. There is a lawmaker that stands behind all states and all societies and all cultures over all time. And that lawmaker is God. <clears throat> all wrong that is, is done is ultimately done against God. Like I said, it ultimately ends at his feet. So, for example, when I wrong my wife, it, it feels very much like it's just between the two of us. But if you were to read the case file, it wouldn't just be Rebecca versus Bevan. It would be God versus Bevan. It's bigger than that. It's his laws that I've broken if I've done wrong to my wife. And that's why in 1 Peter 3, we are warned as husbands, if we do not treat our wives rightly before God, we should not expect our prayers to receive much attention. God is the one we have wronged in this matter. Now, I do have a relationship with my wife to clean up, but I've got a bigger problem on my hands than just that. I've got a God problem. Now, thankfully, God has devised, as this verse says, ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. The way that God devised this was exactly what was occurring on the cross where Jesus said these words of forgiveness. That is the way of forgiveness. Now, just imagine what the soldiers must have thought when they heard these words. Now, you have to understand this was probably not their first crucifixion. They had nailed many people to crosses. And so they'd heard all kinds of screams and sounds of pain, and I'm sure they'd heard all kinds of curses and claims of innocence, but they'd never heard this. They'd never heard anyone on the cross say, Father, forgive them. They knew what he was talking about. He was asking God, his Father, to forgive them. Jesus was saying that the real issue wasn't whatever they did to him, but what they were doing to the Father. And what Jesus really did, in a sense, is he said, you know, this looks like it's between you and me, but I know it's bigger than that, so let me just get out of the way so that you and the Father can deal with what's really going on. So what was the result when Jesus said that? Well, we get a small glimpse. We don't really know the long-term impact, but we get a little glimpse of what how this impacted those soldiers around the cross, the ones that had crucified him, who had carried out this injustice. Mark 15, 39, we read this, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. We don't know what he did from that point, but it had an impact. So with one of his last breaths, Jesus demonstrated for all of us why we need to forgive. The injustice he faced 
I'm, I promise you, is going to be greater than any injustice we face. But he demonstrated why we, like him, must forgive. Because what's at stake is far bigger than just us. Yes, they have wronged us. But more importantly, they have wronged God. And if, if they do not get things straight with God, they will spend eternity in separation from him. That's much bigger than whatever grievance we have. In the next life, we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. We will not be lining up to give an account of our lives to each other, but to God. And at that moment, our only hope is the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. There will be no other hope. And if we choose to hold on to the wrong, what we're saying to everyone that we come in contact with is who knows us about this, what we're really saying is this life is all about my personal justice. And we couldn't be more off base. It's not. And when we forgive, when we let it go, we are getting out of the way so that they can deal directly with God. So our justice has a payment problem. The second statement that Jesus made indicates that our justice also has a conscience problem. In other words, very rarely are we nearly as convicted about the wrong we've done as we should be? And very rarely are they as convicted about the wrong that they've done as they should be. So Jesus said, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Now these guys, what this means is these guys were not asking Jesus for forgiveness. Why not? I mean, they were, they were, they were crucifying an innocent man who happened to be God in flesh, but they didn't see it that way. They were doing an awful thing, and they didn't feel even a tinge of conscience about it. And you know what? They're not the only ones. They weren't the first ones. They won't be the last ones who have done something wrong, and they don't feel bad about it. I mean, just again, think about someone who's wronged you deeply. Do they fully see what they have done to you? And do they feel remorse? And do they feel bad about it? Maybe. That's pretty rare. Some do. And they probably have come to you and asked for your forgiveness. And it's still hard to forgive, even in that situation, but it's a whole lot easier when someone acknowledges, when they feel guilty about what they've done, and they acknowledge they're wrong, and they ask for forgiveness. But most people, especially the deeper wrongs that we experience, they don't. There's no evidence that they feel bad about it at all. They maybe blame you if they think something wrong was done, or they blame someone else. And in most cases, they're just completely oblivious. They don't get it at all. And that's when it gets really, really hard to forgive. That's the kind of forgiveness we're going to be focusing on mostly. Those who have not asked for it. So what occurs then in that situation, in the matter of what they've done wrong to us, we take on the role of lead prosecutor in the pursuit of total justice. We build our case against them. Every chance we get to other people and to them, we present the evidence. And you know what happens? Nothing. They keep not getting it. So we keep gathering evidence and we keep prosecuting our case, even if we're the only ones listening. In our own head, we're prosecuting the case. We're, we're imagining what we would say if anyone would listen and if they would finally come to us and ask us for input. We've, we've, we've got the case all prepared. And we keep refining it and polishing it in the hope that one day their conscience will wake up. And this is why it's so hard for us to forgive, because if we forgive them, what that really means is we're dropping the case. 
And it's a big case file we've been working on for years. And when we look around, it doesn't look like there's any other prosecuting attorneys with near the motivation that we have to prosecute this case. So if we drop it, if we let it go, you know what that means? No one's going to prosecute it. The truth that we need to understand when it comes to our pursuit of total justice is we can't make anybody get it. No matter how great your argument is, no matter how strong the evidence is, you can't make anyone get it. Even Jesus didn't do that. You know, he's hanging on the cross, having done miracle after miracle after miracle. This wasn't just kind of a, a no-name event. This, was, this captured the attention of all of Israel at the time. Everybody knew. Everyone had heard. Most people had seen with their own eyes a bunch of miracles. And they still didn't get it. I mean, how much more evidence need to be presented for people to say, wow, I get it now. So what now? This is the last chance. I mean, Jesus is going to be take his last breath in a few moments here. So what's his last big move? I mean, he's taught, he's done miracles, he's healed people. So what's the final big move going to be on the part of Jesus? Is it going to be one last big miracle? You know, if it was me hanging on the cross, I'd give people just a little glimpse of the fiery angels of God's army surrounding them all. So they'd say, uh, 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 well, I mean, that, wouldn't that have been convincing? One final display of power, one more compelling and moving speech on the part of Jesus. I mean, he'd done all of these. Well, here was Jesus' big and final move. It's recorded in 1 Peter 2.23, speaking of that moment in the cross. When they hurled their insults at him, this is speaking of the crowd, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made how many threats? No threats. Why? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He said, you know what? I'm going to move this all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're not even going to handle the lower courts here. We're just going to go straight to the final court. I'm going to put this one before the Father. He let it go. Turn the case over to his father. Why? Jesus knew that if he retaliated and if he threatened, it would be a distraction. See, we can't make anyone get it, but we can get in the way of them getting it. You know, if we threaten to retaliate and we go verbal on this, all they're going to see is us. It's going to prevent them from seeing the fact that they have an appointment with God one day, just like we do. And it will keep them from hearing God's invitation to forgiveness because all they hear from us is justice. I've asked um, Seiji and Kathy Oyama to, to join me on stage. You know, I want them to tell just one of the stories uh, from their life. We all have these stories, but I wanted you to hear from them, seeing as they're visiting us from Tokyo, about one of the forgiveness challenges that uh, they have faced. Uh, Seiji, as Dale mentioned, is the pastor of uh, the church in Tokyo that we partner with. In fact, a third of our Christmas offering this year is to, to help them reach more people in Tokyo with the good news of God's offer of forgiveness uh, in Christ. And they've been good friends of ours. They've been part of Seabreeze for a number of years before they went there. So, uh, Sage and Kathy, would you guys share with us before? And then I'll come on back up. Good morning. It was kind of funny and strange that, that Kathy's not translating into Japanese. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, our family attended this Seabury Church for about four years. 
until we moved to Tokyo in January 2005. Uh, Pastor Vivian, as you know, that the, he in, uh, invited us to share one of our deepest, most difficult um, pain, painful experience that relate to how to forgive those who hurt us and, uh, and also how to restore the relationship. We have four children, but actually we have five. We had a daughter that died very soon after she was born. She was our second child. And um, at that time, one of our closest family friends acted towards us in ways that felt like betrayal. Uh, when we needed their help and their support the most, they made choices and took actions that seemed completely opposite of what we needed. And we were so confused and hurt by them they spread false rumors about how our baby died, accusing us of crushing her in our sleep. They criticized the way that we um, took the lead role in her funeral and talked about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. They thought we should sit quietly and just cry. And their negative comments continued, not only about our daughter, uh, but just in general, they chose me as a target of criticism and, and it just went on and on. And these family members were the first believers through our ministry, and they are very special to us. They have become key leaders in our efforts uh, to plant a new church among Japanese in Southern California. We are also business partners, but after all they have done, they ultimately left the church and terminated our partnership in business. After the loss of our daughter and all of these um, experiences of betrayal, I fell into a depression that lasted for about two years, and I cried out to God about my pain and my grief, and I asked him over and over again, how do I deal with this deep hurt that I was feeling? And I really struggled with the idea of forgiving those people. At first, I just asked God to punish them, and I reminded God about how creatively he dealt with the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, sending plagues and opening up the earth underneath them. And I said, God, just a well-placed lightning strike would be adequate. Wouldn't be hard for you to do this at all. And I just kept telling him over and over, I'm so hurt. Help me to deal with this hurt. Help me to deal with this pain. What do I do? And he taught me through years of this conversation that forgiving them was designed to free me from thinking about them and from feeling that deep pain. You know, instead of spending all my time building this case against them, he was just like, leave it to me. And the point was not to let go of them or to free them from their responsibility. Forgiveness was really intended to free me. And the way to forgive them involved this process of turning it over to God over and over and over again when the hurts that I felt and my desire for justice to be meted out to them kept coming back to me. I would say, okay, God, here it is again. Here it is again. And forgiveness meant letting go of it and surrendering to God the wrongdoing and the wrongdoers. It took a long time because I had to keep giving that burden back over and over again every time I realized I was carrying it. I couldn't forgive them for a long time. From time to time, I made very negative comments about them. And when I heard that they are not doing right, doing good in the business, I felt good. <laughs> in those days, Kathy caught me criticizing them and told me, Forgive and forget is what 
we Christians to do, isn't it? But I responded, sorry. I will never forget them because they hurt you so much. And no reason, for no reason, they are bad. They had to come to us and especially before you and knelt before you and apologize. Then I might forgive them. Because we serve them, we backward for them, you know, bend, bend backward. But they hurt you in return. At least they need to demonstrate to us their will, remorse, and a sincere apology. Later, I realized my coping mechanism for this issue manifested as a drive to become successful in my business so that the whole world would know we are right, but they are wrong. In other words, I tried to free myself by my own efforts instead of entrusting the issue to God. Seven years later, after the, after the split, we received a phone call from them. Uh, we had to meet them for some trivial thing like they needed um, to get a uh, pink slip from us and that we had. I was not ready to meet them. I clearly rem remember what I said to Kathy on the way to meet them. I don't know what to say to them. I'm so nervous. I, on the other hand, had unknowingly been preparing for this day for those many years of back and forth with God, and I had already let go of them and given them over to God in my heart. So I felt peace, and I really felt this odd sense of non-anticipation. I wasn't nervous. It was like, okay, this is going to happen. So we had chosen to meet in a mutually neutral location, which was the brand new at the time, Waterfront Hilton, and we made our way there. I didn't want to initiate the conversation so <clears throat> because I was still mad. So uh, I made a fake smile on my face and kept my mouth shut. But God was with us. And they began talking about the difficulties of their life, uh, their last seven years, which I was happy about. <laughs> but uh, I realized through their experience, they had grown in their trust in God. And God had helped their walk in faith. As they spoke, they acknowledged several times how grateful they were when they faced difficulty for the teachings from us that came back to their mind. They expressed that um, they realized how precious to them was the time we had fellowship together by read the Bible and prayer. As I listening to, I was listening to this story, I was convinced that God loves them and had been with them. And God sort of I skipped, okay, teaching them how to develop a deeper relationship with their Lord. But at the same time, I was speaking, I was seeking revenge by succeeding in business. I remember the Lord whispered to me, why don't you let go of your grudge against them? I love them too, just as I love you and have been helping you. 
So on that day, even though the path that Seiji took and the path that I took was very different, we both got to this place of forgiveness towards them. We were willing to separate them from the actions that they had taken, and we were willing to release the meeting out of justice to God. We had turned our list of hurts over to God so they weren't in our hands as we listened to them and interacted with them so that we couldn't cross-check if they covered all the hurts that we had against them and all the, you know, the evidence that we had against them. We were able to hear the heart behind their words and we could hear the apology that they were conveying. And because we had been brought to this place of forgiveness towards them, we were able to reconcile with them at that time. But that did not mean that we were back to where we were before all of this had happened, as if it hadn't happened. We did not feel like we should go back into business with them or partner in ministry with them. But we could be together with them easily. And we could sincerely pray for God to work in them and through them and even to bless them. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, Seiji and I are going to visit them. It's the first time you'll have seen them for many years. I saw them in February. They're preparing a party and a gathering of friends to honor us. Our relationship is very different now and much healthier now than it was those many years ago. And we rejoice to see what God can do as we bring our broken hearts to him and he brings healing and restoration in ways far beyond our imagination. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seiji and Kathy. Uh, I want to, at this time, just uh, invite the ushers to come forward. I want to say a little bit more as they uh, receive the offering. You can put offerings or the connection cards or the buckets as they do that. Next Sunday, as we continue on this topic of total forgiveness, we're going to be looking at the process that Kathy referred to of forgiveness. So often we think that forgiveness is some kind of an emotional moment or event, and really it's, it's more of a process that, depending on how deep the hurt is, often depends on how long the process needs to be. So we're going to be looking at uh, the mechanics or some of the particulars of that process next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, we're going to be looking at the impact that forgiveness has uh, not only on them, but also on us and the need to, to keep practicing forgiveness. Um, what's often true is what I experienced on Beach Boulevard a couple of months ago is you think you're done, you've worked through the process, forgiveness has been realized, and then you realize I've got more work to be done on this. So we're going to be talking about kind of the ongoing patterns of forgiving, especially these deep wrongs. So I've asked um, Sage and Kathy to just kind of stay on this side of the stage after this service so that uh, you can identify them if you want to meet them. I encourage you to come on up and, and meet them if you have not met them or greet them if you uh, know them already. And then also I want to encourage you to pray if you're not already pray, but pray about the Christmas offering. Uh, this, we do this every Christmas. This is not about Seabreeze and not about our own uh, budget. Uh, this is something separate. It's for those of us who are part of this church uh, to pray about, out of our gratitude to God in this season of giving, what we might want to give above and beyond our normal giving to Seabreeze. And so um, the church in Tokyo is one-third of what our Christmas offerings are going to go to this year. So I would encourage you to be praying about what God would want you to give uh, to that offering uh, by the end of the year. Also, if you would like to uh, pray with someone before you go out to enjoy breakfast, uh, we'll have some folks over by the prayer team sign that would be happy to spend some time in prayer with you. We're not going to have the band uh, come up. Uh, I'm going to lead us uh, in a, a prayer uh, to thank God for the food, and then you'll be dismissed. If you ate already, this prayer of uh, blessing will be retroactive on the food that you're, 
already digesting, so we'll bless it in reverse. Uh, and then I encourage you to head out after I close this in prayer to enjoy the mingle and jingle uh, breakfast we have out there. So join me in prayer as we close. Father, we, um, well, we are alive because of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness of us. And we recognize that what's really at stake is our relationship with you and the people around us, their relationship with you. And so as we try to enact justice and bring about retribution on those that have wronged us, we, we say the opposite of what is true. And so I pray that you would help us to let go and entrust, as Jesus did, to you, the one who judges justly these matters that have hurt us so deeply. Uh, in this season where often we may encounter some of the people that have hurt us deeply or be reminded of that, I pray, God, that you'd help us to remember what Jesus said, where he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We ask for your help in this matter. We thank you for the food that we're about to eat. We pray that you would nourish us and you would uh, allow us to enjoy each other's company as we head out to have some breakfast. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.